1: Welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside and on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels here in the Santa Monica studios as we go into December, the short tennis off season that we have, but we're going to make the most of it here as I'm joined now by the founder and CEO of The Performers Mindset, a company that helps athletes, actors and executives elevate their approach before after and during their performances he's won awards as a writer and a director and is coming up on two decades as a performance coach you can also hear him hosting the better podcast now please welcome to tennis channel inside in joe town joe thanks for joining the show
0: thanks so much mitch it's a pleasure to be here thanks for having me
1: i'm excited to go here i know i see you got your it looks like a soccer jersey on we're, we're Ready to perform and uh, get into that athlete's mindset. I can't wait to do it. Let's do it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about yourself before I get into the topic at hand. Uh, I have this right, I think, raised on Long Island and then eventually migrated out west. But performing was in your blood, and it seems like it was something that at, a, at a young age you knew you wanted to kind of do and get involved in industry-wise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think my dad was on the radio, so, you know, he was always uh, – anchoring the music side of things and my mom was more of a fine artist and uh my stepdad who came into my life pretty early you know he was into photography and i think the combination of the three of them make films so i I ran up to the screen at two and was like trying to figure out how to get in you know like Mm -hmm. i was so moved by the story i was like how do i get into this world
1: was it that first time at on sesame street where you were like okay this is what i wanted to do this is you know me being a performer
0: Gosh, you know, so it's funny about Sesame Street. I I was invited to come down to be on Sesame Street, and my parents said no. It was actually my first denial ever. Mm-hmm. I think I had two major ones. One was, uh, you know, my friend, my first friend in the world got to be on Sesame Street, and so I missed out on that, and I longed to do it. I love the Muppets. And the other one was, you know, in the traveling team in soccer. I think the rigorous schedule, yeah. uh, my stepdad just was like, it's too much. So uh, I, I would have loved to have been part of that, but uh, came together later in life.
1: So yeah, that's a good segue. I actually didn't know that you played soccer pretty competitively as a kid. Did you start yeah, was, yeah did you start to see that there was like that correlation as you kind of got into the the industry of production and film and, and television that there's already comparisons that you can draw between the two disciplines?
0: Yeah, you know, I I was a total lover of, of athletics as a young kid. I love baseball. I love soccer. Those were the two sports. I love to play. I'm obsessively listening to my little tiny handheld radio, yeah. listening to the baseball game and memorizing players, stances and batting averages, you know, like most kids uh, who were maybe interested in baseball. And I think, you know, you kind of had to pick sides at a certain point, whether it was in high school or college, like you were either an athlete or you were an artist. That was sort of the implicit thing. And, you know, I know a lot of artists who are like, what's a Super Bowl? Mm. And then there are a lot of athletes who have no idea what, you know, a certain musical might be. And I was sort of at the intersection of art and sport. And I've always been fascinated by the two. So I found, you know, a handful of people that loved both. And I was the kid who had, you know, season tickets to football for four years at college, even though I didn't really have a big group that I was going with because I was in the theater school. But uh, I've always been fascinated by that interplay and what they can learn from each other. Do
1: you feel like geographically where you were in New York, and you could say the same for other cities, but having a direct line to theater? I don't think a lot of people, well, people like I'm from the Midwest, there isn't necessarily that direct, direct connection. But that had to shape you in a lot of ways. That it gave you insight and this ability to kind of see things and see performance at such a high level.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I was really fortunate that our high school had a good theater program. Uh, meaning they invested into the arts and I just became obsessed. But my bonding with my grandmother really was, she took me into the city. And I remember her taking me to a, a theater called Circle in the Square. And it's different than being in one of those theaters where you're sort of set way back and, you know, the theater's way up there. You're, you're almost in the play because it's in the round. And there was something about being so close to the performance and feeling like I could see the other audience members. There was just something magical about it. And I've always felt at home in a theater, whether it be movie theater, you know, or uh, someplace you put up a play or something.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And is that, I guess, was USC like the the plan? Was that something that just kind of, a, you know, it's very tempting. I understand like you're from the East Coast, you see USC and you have the ability to get in there. Was that something you were targeting or did that just kind of happen to, you know, organically come to be, you know, I, I think my first
0: choice was Northwestern. I just had an idea (laughs) in my head that I wanted to go to, you know, my, my friend's older brother had gone to Northwestern. I visited the campus and I have two different names. I have a name that I was born with Ariel. And then what five years old, I took my stepdad's name, Joe. So it started this sort of split. So at school they had two different files. And so I'll never know if I would have gotten into Northwestern because they send the wrong file. But as far as USC goes, I knew I wanted a break from New York. It was either NYU or USC. And I was definitely drawn to film. I was definitely drawn to the idea of being around sunshine and, you know, possibly swimming or something like that. I even enrolled in Advanced Swimming B my freshman year at USC. And I couldn't hang after two months. I was like, oh, right. They train Olympians here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's fun, And it's, I mean, yeah, destiny, right? Like the wrong application. And all of a sudden you're, you know, on a different path. It's kind totally of crazy guided uh,
0: somewhere else. Yeah. Uh,
1: you studied theater and psychology. I don't think that that's necessarily common. And it kind of gets into the other question of, was there a plan that you were going to try to leverage these two paths? Was it a fallback plan? You just see so many people industry-wise that are, you know, blinders on one track mind. I'm going to do this. I'm going to work survival jobs. What was your thought process to having dual degrees and maybe options, so to say?
0: Yeah, I thought it was going to be film. I -hmm. thought it was going to be theater and film. And uh, the big challenge was the rigorous second schedule of not only trying to do what I was trying to do, which is become an actor. I was a playwright. I was interning at 20th Century Fox. But then the idea of adding in a production level of film at USC film school is just too much. Mm -hmm. I was always fascinated by psychology. My high school had a college level psychology course. So I sort of learned some of the basics about like the DSM and, you know, the id, ego and superego. And in college, I had an amazing professor who was teaching us abnormal psychology. And so I was really coming at it from how do I understand those characters that are not easy to access? You know, like a Hannibal Lecter, like, how do you understand what drives people like that? So I was really interested in the intersection of that and uh, applying that to the craft of acting. But it wasn't until much later I discovered that this would be, you know, something else that I'd love to do to try to pay things forward and help others.
1: Did you have that first couple of years out of college working those survival type jobs trying to make it? Was there some of that story as a 23 year old?
0: Oh, yeah. My, I moved to New York City right after college and uh, moved in during a blizzard. <laughs> and ended yeah. up working at a local restaurant. I thought I wanted to be a vegan. So I was a vegan for a while, I only ate at this one restaurant, met some amazing people Used that as a chance to sort of recover, if you will, from going to school for 20 years straight. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I was at book publishing. Uh, I worked as an investment consulting firm, I had a lot of different types of support jobs. And I think you know I was always doing something in the side, whether it was writing or coaching other people. And eventually, coaching became the thing I did in between writing and performing.
1: Yeah, you've been in kind of on that same notion. You've been pretty open about, even after you graduated, you've been pretty heavy into reading and trying to learn as much in many different skill sets as possible, uh, which is great advice for any young person out there. But what was it about coaching that stood yeah. out among, among all the stuff that you were, we, learning and reading?
0: Yeah, I think it was modeled for me from my mom. She was just the yeah. kind of person that people came over and just wanted to listen to her talk or share with her. And so she was sort of an embodiment of a coach. And, you know, I, I really appreciated when there was good coaching around a sports team. And I've just always felt like as an artist, we have to center ourselves. We have to be kind of selfish with our time and we have to kind of block out everything else not necessarily in the craft itself we have to put ourselves in other people's shoes, but I've just always felt like it's so important to pay things forward. And so a lot of people started coming to me said, you know, you know, you're a really good listener. I felt like I sort of had that modeled for me and uh, I just always really wanted to figure things out with people. So I think it started in, whether I was an assistant at a company or a PA on a film set yeah. on a commercial, like I was always trying to help figure stuff out. Why not do it together? You know?
1: There's that link with sports and performing again. Like you're looking at coaches and sports teams. Did you have any uh, you know, particular ones that you that stood out to you as well, wow, this is a good sports coach, any anything?
0: God, you know, I think that the first major sports coach that impacted me was I was in I went to USC at a time when we always lost to UCLA four years in a row, and we lost to Notre Dame pretty much every year, if not every other year. So, it, you know, we, we won a Rose Bowl uh, towards the end of my time at USC, but it was before Pete Carroll came in. And something happened when Pete Carroll came into mm-hmm. USC. And all of a sudden, I, I couldn't understand why we were doing so well. I wanted to, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand yeah. it. And, you know, it, there really wasn't a, a ton out there about him. But anytime I read an article about how on a Friday night, you know, he would drive down to some part of the city, stand under a street lamp, and just talk to people. Mm-hmm. And I thought there's something here. Here's somebody who's doing something extraordinary in the world of football, but he also really cares about people. And the more that I deep dove into that, I started to to come to understand and appreciate coaches like Popovich or Phil Jackson, you know, what he was doing with the Lakers and certainly what he had done with the bulls. And my dad had always told me about Pat Riley. When I was nine, I was taken to a Tony Robbins seminar and did a fire walk. (laughs) I think my dad was trying to help me be more confident. So um, I had no idea that Pat Riley had, you know, hired, um, Tony Robbins to come in and speak to the team. Yeah. But the idea of that intersection of how do we help people on all levels,
1: Pat Riley stood out through uh, an older generation. He was the first sharp sharp-dressed guy as well. He really took it as a serious profession, but on Pete Carroll, that's a, that's a great example. You know, he is his environment. You can be competitive. You can get work done, but still enjoy it, enjoy the process and enjoy getting to know people. Um, and,
0: and linking and, it to tennis for a moment, mm-hmm. like when I read the article about what he was doing with players, he referenced Timothy Galwie's book, mm-hmm. The Inner Game of Tennis. And he bought it for his staff, he bought it for his his players. And you know, I, I didn't realize that in the new edition he actually wrote the foreword. But that concept of, you know, player A and player B and the different kinds of mind that affects our craft. You know, that's something that really spoke to me as an artist, because I feel like I'm my best self when I'm able to be able to access my intuition and read and react to what's happening in the moment. And I'm not trying to judge it from the outside and get so hyper focused on it. It feels robotic, you know
1: more with Joe Town here on Tennis Channel Insight, and In. he's the founder and CEO of The Performer's Mindset. Touching on coaches and, and getting into the athletes and their performance itself, do you find that there's one, I guess, commonality or, or something that stands out between artists, actors, entertainers, and athletes? One, I guess, common area where they're both very similar?
0: Well, I think there's, there's we all battle similar battles. Like, we all battle nerves. You know, we get, we get excited about a moment. And for some of us, the nerves are dysregulating. They spin us into being out of control. And for other people, they use them like fuel. And I think athletes in some ways have a more science-backed you know, approach. There's a lot of money spent studying athletes, not as many studying artists. And I think we all have to get switched on for these moments where we have to perform. So if it's on a field, if it's in a classroom, if it's in front of our Instagram account, you know, we all have to perform. And then how do we come down from that? How do we make sense of what happened? How do we come down from that? So I'm really interested in the bookends of how we get switched on for and how we come down from life's biggest moments.
1: That's very true. And I think it, it kind of leads into what we're seeing in the current day and age. We've got athletes, tennis players in particular, that are more open about their battles with mental health, just making sure they're in the right place. Your reaction to seeing that, do you think it's something that is you know, trending in the right directions, there's still so much more to do. We've seen Naomi Osaka, Marty Fish had his great Netflix documentary where he bore all on that. What do you think about the openness of the current day athlete?
0: I think it's beautiful. I think it's a real invitation for people to acknowledge what's true for them and the authenticity that comes with that. And opting out of inane sort of conversations and and setting boundaries and being able to prioritize our well-being. I also think that you know we're talking about sometimes only raising our hand when things are a problem. And I think one of the things I appreciate about sports psychology and positive psychology is the idea of optimizing ourselves. So how do we get out in advance of some of these things? How do we prioritize mental well-being? Mm-hmm. How do we practice and train that so that it might inoculate us a little bit from some of these moments where we uh, have increased pressure or tension? Um, but certainly we've moved in a great direction. You know, yeah. I, following Pete Carroll up to Seattle, I was a big fan of Marshawn Lynch. So yeah. his, his jersey mm-hmm. number was my birthday and watching how he handled his maybe social anxiety. It was really painful, but it was also funny depending upon the mm-hmm. moment and how he reacted to it. But, you know, he, he was somebody that I really looked to to sort of raise his hand and say, I'm opting out.
1: Yeah. Take care of your mentals. I think that's what his yeah. famous phrase was. Absolutely. The yeah. uh, you know, the tennis world too, just to kind of go use that as an example, you've seen players in the last couple of years, last decade even, have mental coaches. Novak Djokovic was one of the first to do that, and he's had unbelievable success. And I think that's kind of kind of what you were saying, like getting out in front of it. It's not just about the bad times. It's dealing with success, dealing with the pre, you know, pre-anxieties that you might have everyone points to, you know, post match after a loss, how tough that can be, but making sure you're in the right mental state before and during the performance is huge.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, you know, like, it's so clear that as physical specimens, we're in peak condition, we can have different approaches, but like, we're going to be strong, we're gonna be fast, we're gonna be flexible. And then certainly, you know, nutrition and everything that plays into that aspect of it. But I think the great frontier is not just craft in our body it's the mind yeah. you know so how do we how do we train our mind as opposed to just get into habits
1: when you see an athlete that takes time away uh, Naomi Osaka was an example Simone Biles at the Olympics there's a couple NFL players that have you know say taken some time off to deal with what they're going through is that, I mean, I don't want to say, should that be the norm or should that be expected? But what does that mean to somebody that's in the field like yourself to see athletes say, okay, now it's time to, you know, take away and miss a couple game checks and opportunities to, to earn and succeed. Yeah. I mean, it's, I
0: think number one, I look at the overall system. What are we asking people to do? Mm -hmm. You know, it's in, in the craft of acting, you recently had a whole group the union, the IATSE union is basically standing up saying, you know, these working conditions are so stressful that it's not worth the money. And then we need to change the way we're doing what we're doing. And so I think athletes are saying, I'd rather forego money. I'd rather forego momentum and take care of uh, this, that has become a priority for me. And I think the more we can celebrate that and the more we can move it all the way down the chain, you know, move it all the way down to, to young athletes, you know, how do we practice mindfulness at the beginning and start of our day? How do we visualize what's going to come? How do we check in along the way so we don't just grind through injuries? Yeah, I think it's it's real, uh, it's measurable. And I think it's, it's great to see athletes empowering themselves to stand up for their priorities.
1: Yeah, being excellent in your field doesn't guarantee success or happiness off, you know. And uh, I think it's good to see. And, and I draw a comparison, another one with sports and, and acting. I mean, the tennis season is long, 10 and a half, 11 months. You're, you're on the road. We know how long it is to film shows and make movies. And, you know, and another thing too, I'm sure you've come across is that COVID hasn't been easy for anyone in terms of isolation and not getting that human interaction that we've taken for granted for so long.
0: Yeah. I think I've been reading up a lot on connection and they say social connection is the great predictor of longevity. So when we think about that, like, what do we want out of our whole life? Not just out of this month or this paycheck. We start thinking about that, you know, not only uh, maybe does that shift our priorities. I think you're absolutely right. We've been isolated and we've been doing that to stay safe, but we're being invited more and more to get back into the same spaces and, you know, our, our we rise and fall to the level of our habits. So depending upon what you've practiced in COVID, it's either prepared you to be more isolated or it's inviting us to, you know. Melt some of the ice and and seek out some of these connections in in a new way.
1: I agree. I think it's it's nice to kind of have that human connection any way that you can, doing it as safe as you can, and also just trying to you know get back to having that human bond with people that have gotten you to where you need to be. Uh, Mm -hmm. On that same note, on that same regard, what do you think these organizations, sports franchises, uh, can do to help alleviate some of the mental anxiety, mental strain? There's been a lot of talk in the tennis world about the post game press conference, especially after a loss. What if anything do you think can be done to change, you know, how the comfortability is for these athletes?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of this has to do with transitions. So <clears throat> after a big game, you know, you you watch something where you know, a reporter has to run up to somebody after a big play. I'm thinking about Richard Sherman, sort of yelling into the microphone with <laughs> yeah. Aaron Andrews. Right. And you know, she's doing her job. She's doing what a producer asked her to do and, He's obviously hyped up. Would it benefit us sometimes to allow transition time? You know, I was, I was watching what some players have to do after a Super Bowl loss and they they have 90 seconds to walk down a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And then they have to stand in front of a billion people and talk about losing in front of, you know, in front of the world. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that there is some value in transition time afterwards, letting people go have a shower letting people have a few moments of quiet. And so not only letting them have that, but maybe building that in. So I think that it, all of us may need to adjust, you know, maybe we slide things back five minutes. Maybe uh, the coach speaks to the team and then gives people moments of quiet. Maybe, maybe it becomes part of something we practice back in college. So I'm really interested in paying attention to the transitions, how we, not just get hyped up, but how we come down from. Right. And I, I, think, yeah. I think the other thing is checking it along the way, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm noticing, uh, my, my son's five. And so, you know, they were, I was talking to a school this morning and they're like, you know, at the beginning of class, they ask them to check in. What do you need? Do you need to go for a walk on the playground before we start? Do you need to sit? Do you need to breathe? You know, they're so simple, but I think they make a huge difference how we enter into our workday.
1: Yeah, I think transparency is key too. Um, with the Naomi Osaka thing, I keep referencing it, but I think there just was a, a lack of that. I think on all sides, I think her team, the organizing bodies could have done a better job just communicating what was going on. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, like learning anything, there's going to be rough patches, there's going to be growing pains. I think it's actually a good thing that we're starting to experience this because that means progress. That's the only way I think progress is going to be done by just getting through these uncomfortable times.
0: Yeah, and I love, the invitation here to reframe what mental toughness means Mm -hmm. because I think for me, mental toughness always meant grinding it out, Mm -hmm. you know, playing through the pain, playing through the injury, you know, go moving forward no matter what. And I think the invitation here, you know, might be to rethink what does it mean to be tough And, and maybe tough actually means raising my hand when it's uncomfortable. Maybe tough is looking at something and feeling something instead of bypassing it. You know, I I think the the idea here is that what we are modeling in front of all the people that follow what we do, I think can impact not just one generation, but multiple generations to come. So I'd like to invite us to include like, you know, what we're experiencing on shows like Ted Lasso, you know, the idea of vulnerability amongst males in sports, you know, reading about the writer's room and hearing them talk, you talk about therapy. You talk about oh. Brene Brown and Esther Perel. Like, how cool is that in a way? And I think that, you know, you can still be great on the field and perhaps we're being invited to be different humans along the way.
1: That show has like 100% approval rating, I think. I don't know many that are, that are just as universally praised as that one. But yeah. you're right. I think mental toughness is still a thing, as is physical toughness. But, like, it goes back to checking in along the way. If you do that with athletes, you're not going to have those catastrophic – you know, blow ups in as many, I should say in the moment, I think if you just check in along the way, it's going to help out the performance. And as you said, it's about pre performance and then post. I think if you skip, if you cut corners on one of those steps, it's just going to make it worse.
0: Yeah. I I think it, it applies to any craft too. You know, if we're cramming for a big exam, knowing when to walk away and do a mental reset, you know, um, I was talking to an actress who's part of the Hollywood production of Hamilton. And as they came back, post covid into rehearsals they're talking about these themes they're saying okay for mental well-being if you need to tap out go tap out that was unheard of 3 years ago and this is amongst artists so like how do we take care of each other and how do we do that well we start by checking in with ourselves
1: Joe town here on tennis channel Insight and founder and CEO of the performers mindset. A couple more things before we wrap this up. Uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And I think this is going to, you know, open a lot of people up to a new perspective and a new way of looking at things going forward for you is working with athletes. Something to, that you think could be a part of your future.
0: Yeah. You know, I've been really fortunate. I've worked at an acting studio in Hollywood for about a dozen years and um Sometimes when an athlete transitions out of their sport, um, you know, they become interested in TV and film. And so I I think one of the first times that I got to work with an NFL player, it was uh, somebody who was a a punt returner. And I was trying to talk about this idea of like, as an artist, you have to be aware of what's going on inside at the same time as you're connected to something outside. And I said, you know, but for you, you have to scan the ball and also read the field, right? If you're going to return this punt. And as soon as they got that, they started to understand what it meant to be an artist. And I've been really fortunate to work with MMA fighters, work with uh, some young high school quarterbacks who are entering, you know, becoming QB1 at some of the you know, major institutions. Yeah. And you know, it's been limited so far, but um, any of the people that we've come across say the same thing. I wish I knew this sooner.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you know, they, they start to see how we're sort of all battling the same battles.
1: Right. I, I've, I'm glad you brought that up. You've done some work with like the Elite 11 program, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. that, that's like probably the, the, I would say the sweet spot of, of working with these kids because they are on the fast track to stardom, not a guarantee, and a lot's going to be thrown at them right away. So that's probably the perfect time to get introduced to this topic.
0: It's one of the first times that I'd love to be more involved is that transition into to, okay, I've been handed an Instagram account with 100,000 followers and I've never performed before. Mm-hmm. And people are coming at me, trying to offer me commercial contracts. And how do I manage performing on a world stage when I've been in a small town and maybe just had a few recruiting conversations? But then also, how do we transition again into the pros? You know, how do we train for, and I think there's a lot of time spent preparing for the draft. Uh, sometimes, you know, Lead 11 to me does things above and beyond in terms of the whole person. Mm-hmm. Um, But then also, how do we transition back out of sport? You know, like eventually we may go on to do something else, whether it's coaching or, you know, teaching or public speaking. And those three inflection points, I think, can get teed up by the time period you're talking about, which is when we are first entering, you know, this exciting moment.
1: I feel that with tennis players a lot, too, especially the young Americans. They have a couple good wins at the U.S. Open. Their followers on Twitter and Instagram skyrocket. They're given opportunities. They're on TV. It's a lot to handle, especially for yeah. teenagers and, and young people that have never dealt with this before. So it's good to be grounded and understand that, you know, you're, you're not defined by a result in one match.
0: Yeah, I think the, the, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is around identity. You know, like somebody's a jerk. And then we say, oh, that person is a jerk instead of there being a jerk. You know, the same thing is true. You're told from a young age, you're an amazing athlete, right? You are so good. So we've learned that that can have an impact on whether or not they grow and learn and are willing to get better. You know, the sort of opposite approach to what Kobe Bryant maybe have done, where he was a lifelong learner and curious, you know. Um, But I think also the idea is like, let's say I know I'm a great athlete. And then I have a season-ending or, you know, career-ending injury. Who am I if I don't know myself outside of what I do? So I think separating out our ability to uh, know who we are from our identity as a performer is also important.
1: It's perfect advice uh, and one that I think we should all take into account. Joe Town, pleasure chatting with you. This has been fun, uh, and much, we'll try to convert man. you into a tennis fan too, because you know you got soccer and NFL football, but. You're getting to the tennis community now. We got you.
0: All right. Thanks, Mitch. I look forward to it. Appreciate it.
1: Huge thanks to Joe Town for coming on this week's episode of Tennis Channel, Inside In. And remember, you can find him on The Better Podcast, the show he hosts that inspires us to be better and do better. Conversations that will help us individually, collectively, and develop healthy relationships. He's the CEO and founder of the Performers website. Make sure you check that site out as well. It was a different episode, but I think it's valuable for people in sports, people outside of it, in the professional world. To just understand how those things work and how we can improve and check on our mental well-being and perform when the time is right uh, big thanks again to Joe Town. thanks to everybody out there for listening you can catch this episode of tennis channel inside in on the tennis channel podcast network tennis.com slash podcast and you can also find us on spotify itunes every podcast platform we're there for you so thank you for listening we'll be back next week with more tennis talks and more interviews This is Tennis Channel Insight, and my name is Mitch Michaels. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.